Welcome. Thank you so much for joining this session. My name is Molly Gamble. I'm Vice President Editorial of Becker's Healthcare. And today I am joined by Doug Watson and Kevin Sowers to discuss executive strategy for large health systems. Doug Watson is the CFO of Dignity Health Arizona and Kevin Sowers is the president of the Johns Hopkins Health System and executive vice president of Johns Hopkins Medicine. Before we dive into our conversation today, Doug, let me turn to you and ask to share with attendees a bit more about yourself and your role in your organization. And Kevin, I'll ask the same of you after Doug, just so they can understand your context and where you're coming from today. Absolutely, thank you so much. It's uh, great to be here today. Uh, I'm uh, the Chief Financial Officer over uh, one of the largest divisions of Common Spirit Health. Uh, it's the combination of CHI and Dignity Health that formed Common Spirit Health about a year and a bit ago. Uh, we're a, a very comprehensive system, so we have a large health uh, plan, Medicaid health plan, about $4.5 billion plan, so we see the safety net side of things, and then we also operate uh, the Barrow, uh, which is a very uh, high-end neurosciences uh, institute. Uh, we have uh, seven hospitals across uh, Arizona. Uh, we actually are adding two more right uh, uh, at this time, another organization, Yavapai Regional Medical Center, joining us uh, as a system. Uh, we also have three specialty hospitals, so we have uh, the ability to uh, to do a focus factory sort of things around orthopedics and some areas where you can really get very focused. Um, all of those experienced COVID very differently, so it'll be interesting to share a little bit about that. Uh, but it's uh, a very exciting part of the organization. I also do have the opportunity to participate in a lot of uh, the strategic vision and things that we're doing around the system as a whole. So it's uh, uh, quite an exciting time to be a part of Common Spirit Health. Certainly is. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for being here with us today. And Kevin? Molly, thank you for allowing me to be with you today. Um, I be began my career as a staff nurse in oncology back in 1985 at Duke University Hospital and stayed there for 32 years and uh, worked my way uh, through the administrative ranks. Uh, when I left Duke Hospital, I was serving as the president of Duke Hospital and I'm now proud and pleased to to serve uh, as the president of Johns Hopkins Health System and executive vice president of Johns Hopkins Medicine. Uh, in that, we have six hospitals, uh, one in Florida that's a freestanding children's hospital that is an academic hospital. And we have four of our hospitals in Maryland from a regional perspective and one of our hospitals in DC. So we kind of have uh, a regional strategy around uh, the, the Atlantic region uh, that includes uh, a much broader reach than just Baltimore, uh, where the, the mothership is located. Um, as you, many of you may know, uh, we are globally committed to uh, our clinical excellence, research and education, and delivering on the promise of medicine for future generations. And so uh, we are a significant component of a delivery system that includes primary care, specialty care, and specialty ambulatory centers throughout our regions that we serve. So I'm pleased to be here with you today and look forward to the dialogue. Thank you, Kevin. So Kevin, I'm gonna stay with you actually. And you know, I have been interacting with Johns Hopkins in a small way on a daily basis, as I'm sure many have with the COVID-19 data that your institution publishes and keeps measure of consistently, which has been so, so helpful. But related, you know, this global coronavirus pandemic has been the largest disruption we've encountered in our lifetimes. How much of your executive strategy going into 2020 was rendered obsolete 
by COVID-19? I wouldn't say it's red, uh, obsolete, but I would say it made us push the pause button. Um, because first of all, uh, all the energies had to go into planning to respond to um, the COVID uh, pandemic. And so um, some things were put on hold. Um, um, planning kept going forward for some of the facilities that we were planning for the future, but we did not execute on that because we were concerned about what might happen to cash flows during uh, a, a pandemic like this. Um, but it also made us start to rethink about how we would deliver services in the future. So um, how do we incorporate telemedicine in the future? How do we incorporate um, uh, technology of, of monitoring at home into our enterprise as we move forward? How do we uh, you know, really think through uh, population health and uh, hospital at home as a part of that strategy? So clearly, um, I wouldn't say that it completely disrupted our strategy, but made us pause and rethink about how do we build stronger elements of what we've been talking about, but it also escalated and elevated the value and the importance of that to the enterprise and made us probably respond faster than we would have if we hadn't had the pandemic breathing down our neck. That while the pandemic has been horrific for the entire world, um, that is one of the, the, the things that I think has been one of the gratitudes that has come from that is, is it's forced us to rethink at a faster pace and, and redesign our workflows and our strategies uh, than it would have if we had not been in the midst of a pandemic. Absolutely. So you pushed pause on many initiatives and re-examined them through a different lens. And I think, Doug, I, I anticipate you would be in the same thought and that this pandemic has accelerated so many bold initiatives and asked, driven us to ask some bold questions that otherwise might have taken months, if not years, in a matter of weeks, really, which has just been amazing to watch. Doug, how about for you? What have you seen and how much of this uh, of their strategy heading into 2020 was, if not rendered obsolete, um, you know, at least delayed or significantly altered by this pandemic? That's a very good question. And I, I too, as Kevin mentioned, I don't think things really became obsolete um, so much as the priorities and the focus changed. And in some cases, uh, things like, you know, virtual care was a strategy. Now it's operations. Now we still have strategy visions of how we want to take it to the next level, but it's no longer a uh, is something we're working on to get done as a future event, it, it's done. Uh, and that was difficult. We moved, I mean, I remember there was about 36, 48 hours there where we went from, okay, well, this strategy now needs to become real. Let's figure out how to get it done. And we had some phenomenal people in our IT uh, world and our operations team and the physicians and others that all had to change their construct very, very quickly and did successfully. Uh, we also looked at uh, the reality that while COVID is taking a huge amount of our resources, uh, both bandwidth and physical resources, I mean, we have a number of patients in the hospital every day now that are in beds with COVID that we didn't have a year ago, uh, but other things haven't stopped. So we still are one of the leading brain tumor research institutes in the world. Uh, we're pushing that forward just as fast as we were because we really don't believe we can wait to continue moving some of those sorts of things because brain tumors are, are continuing as they were before and growing and we need to figure out how to get the answers. Uh, we're also seeing 
uh, and Hospital at Home is one that I know John Ho Johns Hopkins has been very involved in the creation of. Uh, we opened a program, uh, and it, again, it was a, strate a strategic vision a year and a half, 18 months to 24 months ago. Uh, we really have started to make it uh, a reality now because getting patients out of the hospital and having them cared for at home when that's possible is a win. Uh, it's safer for them. It's a better outcome. It's higher quality. And as we found in some cases, we can also leverage that infrastructure uh, when we were working with COVID, where we were very short during our peak in the summer in Arizona of beds. I mean, we were very, very short of capacity. The system got very close. And every patient we could get out a day earlier and into their home with added resources, because it wasn't like we could discharge them in a typical home health environment. They were, they were sicker than that. But if we could get them out of the hospital and into their home, leveraging our home health, I mean, our uh, hospital at home capability and infrastructure freed up a bed that gave us the ability to take another person that would have otherwise been hunting for a place to be. Uh, that was tremendous. The other thing I think that it did, uh, and this I think also, you know, sort of a, a really positive byproduct is it, it forced us to have more dialogue with our competitors, if you will, in the city and in the state to figure out how do we do the right thing together. So, you know, a lot of patients were coming into town, uh, into Phoenix from other parts of the state. The Navajo Nation was being hit very hard, Yuma, some of the other parts of the state. And one of our chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Keith Frey, did a fantastic job working with the other medical officers to say, we need to figure out how to traffic this properly. Otherwise, we're going to have patients showing up wherever they land instead of figuring out how do we make sure we level load this across the entire city. Uh, things that would be very hard to do in a normal environment, people rallied around and we made it happen to the greater good of the community and making sure that no one hospital was overwhelmed and, and reached a point of being unable to care for patients. It was really astounding to be able to see that and, and a tremendous uh, uh, win, I think, for everybody. And it created relationships that will continue on. You know, Molly, I want to add on to Doug's comments. One of the things that has been inspirational for me as a leader is um, uh, we did the same thing where we developed a public-private relationship in Maryland. And when you think about competition in the marketplace, to think about Hopkins and University of Maryland coming together with our booze product, which is Care First, um, in the prior marketplace prior to the pandemic would have been unheard of. Mm -hmm. But we decided that we couldn't do this alone. And uh, Mohan Sentha, who, uh, who is the lead of uh, UMS, and also Brian uh, Pinnock, who is the lead of Care First, the three of us got together and we went to the state, to the governor and to our, our secretary of health and human services and said, you know, and to our mayor and our, our public health departments in our region and said, we're, we're gonna have to come up with policies and procedures that are consistent because if one place is doing it different than the other, the public's going to ask, what do they know that they don't know? We also stood up a 250-bed field hospital together at the convention center. We set up testing sites for our nursing homes and went into nursing homes together to test the patients and their families. Um, we, we also saw uh, testing sites that we set up at the convention center where we test a thousand people a day for anyone in the community. But we did that together. It wasn't Hopkins versus University of Maryland. And our, our faculty and our teams came together to serve our community. And, um, you know, it's inspirational for me when I see that in the midst of a crisis that we 
really go back to our core mission of who we are and what we are in our communities and competition went out, went out the window in the midst of this pandemic. And um, it shows the power of coming together to serve a marketplace. It does. And, and also, uh, as you mentioned, with the state involvement, uh, uh, we were able to really get to closure something we've been working with the state on to, to try to get some uh, stabilization for Medicaid so, uh, financing, et cetera. And, and it was a collaboration between all the health systems in the state and the state. Uh, the legislature and the governor, and just seeing people put the greater good of how are we going to make sure that the system can remain stable through this sort of a situation, and also recognizing, you know, the state helped us. Uh, we had early on had an issue with gowns. We couldn't get gowns. Uh, you know, PPE was a huge problem for most people, and we managed to, uh, actually, one of our surgeons had uh, a design uh, that he came up with, and we worked on creating our own uh, gowns that we produced, but to get the fabric, uh, we had to figure out how to get it, and we had uh, three different uh, situations where we lost the, the merchandise because they wouldn't let it out off the airport. Some of us in Canada, some in Mexico. We finally found some, I think it was in North Carolina. The only way to get it to Arizona was to get the Air National Guard to go help us get it. You know, and again, where would you get the Air National Guard, the state, the federal government, everybody aligned to say, we've got to make this happen because this is for the best. We've now been producing those gowns for ourselves, but also for other Folks, some of which we compete with, but it's again, you know, it's in nobody's best interest for any healthcare person not to have the PPA they need, regardless of whether they're in my hospital or a competitor's hospital. I mean, we all need to make sure as an industry that we're protecting our people. Uh, so it's great to see that kind of uh, uh, just rising to the occasion and, and figuring out what's it going to take and let's get creative. Let's do something nobody's ever done before and just make it happen. It's, it's amazing. And do you forecast that in the year ahead, I, and you mentioned this collaborative goodwill between what were otherwise competitors. Do you think that's gonna extend even when in moments when we're not facing a surge uh, to help tackle in better or stronger ways healthcare disparities in your markets? Do you see that that goodwill extending beyond surges or is it something that kind of comes into fruition when we are really faced with a crisis? My opinion is because of the partnerships that we've formed during the midst of this crisis and, and the power of partnerships that yes, uh, there will always be some competition. So let's start there as a baseline. Mm -hmm. But as you start to think about health equity and how we serve our communities and other opportunities for partnership through clinical program integration, I think those discussions are more ripe now than they would have been in the past. That's what I'm finding. I think you hit it right on, the relationships. Uh, we were fortunate in Arizona to already have a, uh, an environment where the large health systems were uh, collaborating on things like the safety net and trying to figure out how can we make sure that the, uh, the ability for the system as a whole to work through things, even though competitors are comprising parts of the safety net, different parts of the safety net. Uh, looking at things we could do around uh, health equity and other things. So we built off of that, but the relationships have come along a lot further during this period of time. And I think those relationships will endure. Competition will continue to be a, a factor uh, and needs to be. It helps us all uh, continue to be better. But at the same token, we need to recognize that, as I said, there are some things that are uh, using our, our vernacular for the common good. Uh, and you've got to figure out how you come together to do those things that are right for the common good. 
uh, and not let the other things get in the way because some of these things are just too important to the community and to, uh, to patients. Absolutely. So good to hear those relationships and it is a bit more ripe, like you said, Kevin, those relationships will carry through, of course, with some element of competition. But, you know, this has been a really nice overview of how your organizational strategies have been edited over the past several months. But what lessons more broadly has this pandemic left us with about strategic planning in general? Uh, are there any norms or misconceptions that were defied by this pandemic that we previously held more generally about strategic planning? Doug, can I turn to you first for this one? Sure, I'll tell you, the, probably the number one thing is flexibility. You know, we would build strategic plans and, and our, our visions of things. And we always would say we would have a plan B, but we always kind of figured plan A was gonna work. Uh, there's one thing we've seen is in some cases, you have to pivot very, very quickly from what you thought was going to happen to where you need to be. And as an industry, uh, we have not in healthcare been particularly good at moving things quickly particularly if it's someplace we hadn't really planned to go for a while. And, you know, uh, I think that's one major lesson is, is as an industry and certainly as an organization, we're looking more at, you know, how do we move ourselves faster? How do we look at contingencies uh, so that we're not reacting when something doesn't happen and uh, after the fact, but rather anticipating, well, that might not work out. So what would we do? Uh, the other thing that this has really pointed out is the vulnerabilities. You know, so our whole business was predicated upon a just-in-time inventory model for PPE and other things. Well, that broke down in a big way across the country because we couldn't get supply from where it was coming from. And we created issues where then there was no way to solve that quickly. So we're looking at strategies now that involve uh, how are we going to have access to reliable PPE? We've uh, I invested in an organization through Premier to be able to produce PPE on within the United States so that we've got physical access to it. And that requires making some commitments, but it also means that we'll have access. And again, that suddenly has become strategic. Uh, before it was more about, you know, how do we manage our cost profile, you know, which is important, no doubt about it, but it's not quite at the level of strategic importance of we can't operate without this. Um, and so you've got to do things differently and you've got to invest resources to try to make that happen, both relationship uh, investment, but also actual dollar investment to say we've got that capability. Uh, we're doubling down on some things like the um, generic drug uh, collaborative that we've been a part of for a number of years to be able to say we need to make sure we've got supply chain stability. That's suddenly become very important. Uh, and, and these uh, contingencies of, uh, you know, now all of a sudden you've got COVID on a construction site. So a building you thought was going to come online in a year has been delayed by three or four or five months. Well, that has all kinds of implications and you've got to figure out how to work through it. We didn't, you know, we had contingency plans, but we didn't always have them fully thought through as well as we do now. Uh, and that's going to be a positive, I think, going forward. So the renewed need for flexibility and agility and being nimble as a healthcare organization, but also you got more reacquainted with some of the vulnerabilities, as you mentioned, Doug, with supplies in particular. Kevin, how about for you? What, what in general lessons have been learned about strategic planning from this pandemic so far? So I would echo a lot of Doug's comments, but you know, I've always, a lesson in leadership that I always knew that has been reinforced in the midst of this pandemic people will pay attention to what the leader pays attention to. And the only reason I say that in healthcare, 
prior to the pandemic, I would say it was easy for leaders to get distracted at times because you had so many things coming at you at once. Mm -hmm. But one of the lessons I am going uh, into the future with is how do I spend more time like I have in the pandemic, focus on the strategy and having ongoing updates like I've had during the pandemic because those updates for, force progression at a faster pace than getting quarterly updates. Or, um, and so um, I, I think for me, it's the value and the importance of the leader understanding how do you structure your engagement with the strategy, not just on a, a, a longer term basis, but on a more regular basis to remove the barriers that people might be facing or addressing. And, and the pandemic forced all of us to do that. We've had daily huddle calls. We've had weekly calls about um, uh, you know, priority issues, supply chain as Doug spoke to. But because we were so constant and focused, we were able to drive things in a way that historically we may have taken a longer period of time to do. So. Uh, a good lesson that I'm taking that I've known for a long time is people will pay attention to what the leader pays attention to. Um, I'm going to structure more in the future uh, on the other side of this pandemic. A really good point. I think we've I've seen that as well. Is that in, in the clarity of it, you know, being very clear about what is it we're trying to accomplish in the short run. So what's going to happen this week? But then where are we going? People really in the, in a, in this kind of environment, especially, we look to the leadership to be clear about, well, what are we gonna do to position ourselves for the future? And, and what, what what do I need to do to be a part of the future? And I think being yep. clear on that and helping people see it and visualize it is so important right now. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kevin. And that actually gets to something I was curious to learn more about from both of you. But the idea that strategy is about having an established framework for decision-making, a set of principles that really inform decisions as situations evolve, whatever the situation at hand may be. And given the size and scope of your respective systems, how do you help ensure that several stakeholders are operating from that same set of guiding principles or singing from the same hymn sheet, so to say? So Kevin, you mentioned the importance of this, you know, consistent data points and messages being received and ensuring that your team sees what you're looking at and what you consider important that does carry down through the ranks. Um, so I wanna learn more about some best practices for attendees with us today to keep in mind about how to do this effectively with their own organizations. Is there anything more you would add, Kevin, from what you said earlier? Yeah, um, there is, Molly. Um, there's been some incredible lessons learned. Um, first of all, governance, structure, and process. Um, you have to back up and really ask, um, how are you informing your boards? And during this pandemic, we had special calls just to keep them informed about where we were, were with all parts of our mission, because needless to say, uh, all parts of our mission were impacted uh, by, by this uh, pandemic, uh, both from a, an operational perspective and also a financial perspective. So keeping them informed. Um, secondly, um, as it relates to structure, do you have the right structures in place? Because one of the things that, at least for us, it forced us to become even more integrated as a health system. Um, when, we, when you think about managing a pandemic, there's one message that needs to go out 
on whatever the topic is, whether it's how we're going to approach travel, how we're going to approach PPE, how we're going to approach a, a variety of policy issues, but getting people to comfortable with there's one message, um, it's centralized, it's going to be distributed, and it's gonna go out just as it came out from senior leadership. That was a change. Uh, and I, I, as I've talked to my peers across the country, many people have acknowledged that the pandemic forced more integration. And because of that integration, you have to step back and think, do you now have the right structure and the right people at the decision-making table that really can help you inform policy decisions? And if not, how do you repopulate that and not create new committees? Um, and then what is the frequency and the pattern that you need to meet and why? And then where is it that you want information to make a decision or do you want the group to bring a recommendation to you? Because um, there are moments in the midst of this crisis and I think Doug would tell you too that I needed information to make a decision. Um, and there were other times I needed people to look at the facts to provide me the facts and a recommendation for consideration. Um, but knowing that on the front end and telling people why, um, I found has been important so that they have clarity. Um, and around process is um, as it relates, if I just take a process around bed management during the crisis. In, in, in the bed management uh, uh, in the midst of the crisis, our VPMA on a daily basis redistributed patients across our system so that no one hospital would be overwhelmed. We know that's not something we should be doing just because we're in the midst of a pandemic. That's really a best practice of what we should be doing ongoing. Um, and so uh, once again, it gets into governance structure and process. And I really think we have to back up and as senior leaders ask ourselves, um, the old model might not fit that will take us into the future. And that's, what's, that's what we've been forced to do. And it's made us a better organization because of that. Terrific. So a great overview of governance structures and processes that have been adjusted or better revised under this pandemic in these unique circumstances that will probably benefit in the long term from what you said, Kevin. Doug, how about for you in terms of singing from the same hymn sheet? How do you make sure various stakeholders across your organization have the similar framework to what Kevin described in terms of one message, one information, communication with the board, um, even those meetings in terms of when you receive information to make a decision or a recommendation? Ha have you encountered anything from what Kevin said or anything else you want to add? Very similar experience. Uh, again, I, I go back to hopefully as an organization, you have a clear mission as to why you're here. Uh, if you have that clarity, that helps tremendously because then as you're working through this, you hopefully can keep going back to that. And that's the common denominator that everyone in the organization should resonate with. And we found that as, as you got into, you know, we all had very hard decisions to make at different points. Uh, in Arizona, we had a a situation where we had the pandemic start, then we had the lockdown where things really went to uh, very, and we had no uh, non-emergent procedures in the facilities. We, we were really in a, you know, how do we conserve our, our uh, workforce? How do we conserve uh, our clinical leadership, et cetera, because we don't have work for them to do. Uh, and then we rapidly got into an extremely uh, fast moving uh, surge where now all of a sudden we had more work than they could do. 
and decisions made early of, you know, hey, preserving our workforce and doing the right thing with our employees is important. Uh, and we made decisions that were in alignment with our values that I believe our people uh, recognize and, and, and appreciate. Uh, not every organization made the same decisions. Some of them as a finance person were very difficult uh, because you're making investments uh, in things that you have no real understanding of how they're going to pay off, if you will, but you know it's the right thing to do. Uh, and so I think being able to go back to that uh, mission is, is critical. Uh, and then that communication of trying to say, okay, well, we, we quickly started to put together our command centers and the, the, the mantra was, let's understand the facts. And then let's make decisions based upon the data that we're able to get. We were very fortunate that uh, we had spent a lot of time to have single source of truth on a lot of things. So we had data we felt was fairly reliable, which is not an insignificant thing because we were getting a lot of data from the state, from the federal government, from various different uh, uh, models that people were putting out. And, and much of it was in conflict with each other. Uh, it was very difficult sometimes to really uh, be clear on, on, on what set of facts you were going to use to make the decision. But as a team, we said, okay, well, let's figure out and then we'll talk about it together and we'll decide what the facts are. We'll make a decision and tomorrow we'll look at it again. And if the decision needs to change, we'll change it. Uh, and that sort of uh, uh, commitment to working together to, to do a fact-based process was critical. And then changing our communication. So as we're talking out, as, as we talked about earlier, that uh, clarity of, from leadership and cascading that down through the organization so that we could have a common message every day about, well, this is what we know today and this is where we're going and we're not just keeping it in the command center, we're sharing it with people so that the, the line uh, nurses, the line managers know what's happening uh, as much as you can share it. I mean, some of it you've gotta be careful because you don't know for sure it's true, but uh, to the extent we can share it, we want it to be very transparent. And I think people appreciate that transparency in this kind of an environment and, and being willing to admit you don't know in some cases, you know, we don't know how we're going to resolve this, but this is what it is and this is how we're working through it. And so I was very, very, very proud of the team. And, and I think uh, uh, across the industry, we saw people rise to the occasion in ways that perhaps uh, uh, they never had to do before. And we're heading back in now to another period across the country where things are rising and uh, I hope we will not be challenged in the same ways. We're certainly much more prepared now than we were uh, six or nine months ago. Uh, that is definitely true. Yeah. Baptism by fire in so many ways. So Doug and Kevin, I've learned so much from you both in this conversation today. We are up against our time, but I want to thank both of you and thank you and your teams and wish you continued success. I understand this has been quite the challenging year and 2020 is looking just as remarkable and interesting. So I wish you both the very best and want to thank you for your time. And thank you attendees for joining us and for sticking around for Kevin and Doug's remarks today on this really important topic. We at Becker's wish you the very best and thank you for your time. Thank, thank you, Molly. You.